Tonight, we're continuing our series in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And we're in chapter one, and we're considering verses seven to eight, which if I was to read them to you, would read as such. In him, as in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Well, the title of the sermon is The Riches of His Grace. The Riches of His Grace, which is exactly the words that Paul here, under inspiration, has for us in verse 7. And well, we really are, are we not? At the heart of Christian teaching and Christian doctrine. That here in these kinds of verses, summing up, so much that is absolutely critical to what we believe, absolutely central, indispensable in terms of what it is teaching us. And Paul has taken that consideration. It's, it's a big picture, isn't it? He's, he's wanting us to open our eyes wide. And though the church there in Ephesus and quite a number of the people would have known Paul personally for when he was there, but others have since joined the church and a not so familiar to him, but they'd have been familiar with these things, at least to an extent. And yet here, Paul is led to speak of them with such eloquence and with such fervency of spirit that, uh, well, it fair takes our breath away. And the sentences, well, if you try and read them in one breath, it will fair take your breath away because it just, just flows. It just doesn't stop anywhere. It just keeps on one thing leading to another. So we've had the Father and his great plan of redemption there fashioned in eternity past. Great councils of election and redemption. Well, that's something. And then brings it down to the Son, carrying forward those plans, bringing a people to the Father through the Son and through his sacrifice at that. His blood, his death, and all that went before it. Well, there has to have been a life before there is a death. The life is not incidental, as though it all has to just be rushed through to get to his death. No, his life is absolutely critical. If he hadn't lived in the way that he had, indeed, for the length of time that he had, then he would not have been a sufficient sacrifice for us, nor would our gift of righteousness the gift of his merits, the rewards for his life. Well, what life would there have been to to reward? But there has been 33 years of it, in fact. So he doesn't just suddenly appear and die, that he's not here just for a moment and then gone. So his death is, is the moment, and so let's rush through the rest. Let's just hurtle through to that point. Nope, it all of it is in place. It all of it is balanced and in harmony and according to the will of God. So my first heading, what we have in him. What we have in him. There's a heading, is there not? What don't we have in him? What, that would be a shorter list to try and enumerate, what doesn't happen from him? Because everything good that we have comes from him, and it comes from what we have here These key phrases and words, I'm not going to give full value to each and every one of them tonight. We will be here for weeks on end, considering each phrase, if you will, but trying to move a 
at a reasonable pace through these things. You have here in this verse, in these two verses, so much truth telling us what we have in him. And they're not to be read as just statements, as though it's an academic exercise. We've got to master what does redemption mean and what's the grace and what's special about that and why the blood and what's the significance of that, as though we, we're just simply wanting to be able to be accurate in, in our theology and parse it and, and define it carefully. What no, that is that we do. But it is actually that we might praise It's designed to take our breath away. It's designed to fill us with wonder and awe and admiration. One truth just leads to another truth, to another truth. And there's this great uh, momentum that's building up in this passage just to show us this this is the glory of God. All of it there, and he's going to narrow it down to us in due course and focus it down on, on us. He started in... Properly so with God, God's purposes, God's purposes, especially as they are there in the sun. He's going to develop that further in in the verses that follow on after verse eight. And then he'll come to the Holy Spirit and the work that he does and the difference that he makes. And then he's going to pray for the church in verse 15 on the back of all this. This this leads him. You'll notice there's a therefore in verse 15 that all that's gone before means that he's moved then to pray. Just as he's moved to praise, then he is moved to pray. And that is what this truth is meant to do, to the praise of him in verse 6, to the praise again in verse 12, to the praise again in verse 14. It's not designed to to trouble us, just set for us all kinds of insoluble conundrum that we simply are out of our depth to really fathom and understand. But it's given to us, actually, that it might cause us to rejoice and cause us to be lifted up, our hearts to be encouraged, our countenances brightened, and our hopes of heaven made a bit stronger and a bit keener. The grand design of God Though purposes of election are out of our sight, this is something beyond us. It's only beyond my pay grade there to try to fathom that. that. That's beyond us. It's there, but it's beyond us. But it comes very much into sight when it's what the Lord Jesus did. Ah, we can see plans that are in a way kind of up there, out there in eternity, coming very much home when in time and space, And in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, he performs the absolutely necessary work for our salvation. All this is very much done in plain sight. So in John chapter 12, when our Lord was in Jerusalem, and in verse 31, he describes himself as this. This voice, he says, do not come because of me. Remember, for your sake, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, and I... If I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And we're told, this he said, signifying by what death he would die. This death, even, even in the aspect of it, it draws men, drew the attention and the eyes of the people right there, right then, in the actual time when it happened, and has drawn our eyes ever since. The public nature of it, the 
crudity of it, the horror of it. He's lifted up, and what a lifting up that was. It's signifying how he would die. And this is something that we're to pay very, very careful attention to, just as we're to pay careful attention to the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, both God and man. This work is being undertaken by one who has both natures, both fully God and fully man. And they're in one person. And that person is not sort of confused or one moment kind of being God and the next moment being man. But there is a, a harmony and a balance that uh, really is beyond us again to fully fathom. But it was necessary it should be so and that he should be a complete and perfect saviour for his people. And so here is the Lord Jesus Christ, the central figure. God is going to have a people. He is going to relate them to himself. He is going to be merciful to them. And there's only one way that can be done, and that is through the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, laying down his life for those people, shedding his blood. That, of course, he did so, so uniquely. It was a singularity, singular event that all of Scripture been anticipating this moment when. The moment has come, now the moment has passed. And Paul is able to talk about it here as what we now have, the past event, yields its benefits to the Lord's people in the here and the now, whether it was the Ephesian readers back then in the first century or ourselves in this particular century of the world's existence. And in that death, in that blood that is shed, there is a real life that is coming into that death. There's a real life that has been fully, fully tested, that has been absolutely put through the mill, that has not been excused the temptations of Satan, that has not been withdrawn from the heat of the battle and just kept back and kept safe from all the evil speaking and plots of men. Absolutely cast into the midst of such plots and exposed to the worst of what Satan could assail him with. And having to live, and we thought a bit about this this morning, having to live with such opposition and such abuse and such insults. Oh, this was some life. If, if it was going to be found out to be a, a fake, if you will, if we were to find uh, any trouble, weakness there, any proneness to sin, why? the life that he lived would have found it. But he didn't, of course, because there was none to find. Everywhere, none could convict him of sin. The life was pure. The life was perfect. Tempted in every way, loyalties tested, evil that was flung at him, surrounded by ignorance and dullness amongst his own followers. It wasn't a, an empty life, a pampered life, a sheltered life, but a life lived in those three last years of it, very much in the public gaze, very much a constancy of being in different places, preaching in different places, dealing with needs here, answering questions there, having critics lining up against him in another place. Constant activity, constant pressure, demanding, tiring work. And in it all, he came through absolutely impeccable, absolutely Nothing that could be said against him. And when he's reproving, well, he does it with absolute authority and clarity and reasonableness. All of his words 
all of his works, all of his life, bringing together a beautiful, harmonious whole. And so that life was the life that was given up at the cross. It had to be that life. It had to be a perfect life. It had to be a, a sinless offering for his people, else he'd had to die for his own sin. If he'd done a word out of place, a thought that was not proper and not good, then he would not have been a saviour for us. He'd had to perish there on the cross for his own sin. But no, that life was proven. So the death has all the value of that life invested in it. It is a, an obedience that now has continued in obedience in death. Passive obedience, we call it, a, a, a suffering this, not a, a, a remonstrating against it or resisting it, but acquiescing to it and allowing all these things so that scripture should be fulfilled and going to the cross without dissenting. Peter had tried to deter him previously and been there in the Garden of Gethsemane and snatched his sword and cut off the, the ear there of Malchus, the high priest's servant, in order to tell him to put his sword away. And should not all scripture be fulfilled? He had to be arrested. He had to be put on trial. He had to suffer on the cross. And so his blood, well, that blood, the redemption through his blood. Blood, well, that means his death. It means the death of somebody who was alive. There we are. There's a truism if ever there was. But this is what he's saying, that the life is in the blood. And when the blood is shed, that is the life that is gone. Final and complete in that way. That is the most uh, evident and the most visible way in which his death can be summed up. There is his shed blood. His life has gone. And of course, back in the old covenant time, before our saviour came, all the sacrifices had to be attended with this offering of blood. Blood sacrifices, whatever the nature of the, the sacrifice might have been, it required blood to be offered. And so in Hebrews chapter 10, in a, a sort of commentary on that, verse 3 and 4, says, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, day of atonement. For it is not possible the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Where was this bull? The goat is, is dying for a human being. And there isn't an equivalence. It's not the same. It needs a human being actually to die for another human being, that it's insufficient what a bull and a goat can bring into that. God, for that season, was willing to accept that, but only because beyond that, he had already in view that his son would provide the true and the proper offering of blood. Everywhere, all times, that was the reminder of sin, that there was still something that needed to be put right between man and God, some creature at that point, some animal, had to be the one by substitution who would represent the sinner and the sins and offences committed against God. And there had to be blood. And the priest had to officiate and the blood had to be treated very carefully, whether it was sprinkled here or poured out at the, the foot of the altar there, and whether it was in the, the big public festivals like Exodus and the Passover and the sacrifice of the lamb then, or whether it was, as in Hebrews, the Day of Atonement, and the bulls that had to be sacrificed and the two goats, one of whom was sacrificed and the other one was the scapegoat that was cast off into the wilderness to, to take away the sins of the community. Or well, the daily offerings, the lambs are offered in the morning, in the evening, 
the Sabbath offerings, the other feasts and festivals, or the public expressions of private devotion, burnt offerings and peace offerings, and various offerings that worshippers would bring to the altar. Always there was blood. Always something had to die. Some creature had to die in the place of the worshipper because this still was an outstanding issue of our reconciliation with God. But God was pleased at that time to accept his people on the basis of that offering. But then, of course, the full payment of all the sin, not only of people alive at Christ's coming, but people to come and retrospectively, all those saints who died in hope, waiting for that final sacrifice, because they knew that everywhere there's a reminder of sins every year. They knew, more spiritual among them, that there had to be something more than this. And they're encouraged because the Bible was teaching there will be more than this. And God one day will do, do that, which finally abolishes all need of further sacrifice. That fellowship between heaven and earth will be established and, and, and in such an unalterable way. There'll be something so wonderful and, and beyond what presently is. That fellowship will never need another blood sacrifice. It'll only need one more sacrifice of one very special person, and then all sacrifices are in the past tense, and we now rely upon and rest in and are rejoicing in that one who shed his blood for his people. And in that, and we've already really anticipated uh, what uh, the meaning of redemption is, there, there it is in him, that is in Christ. This blood, what's it done? It's brought redemption. Redemption. Redemption is a price to be paid for those who are enslaved, by people who have no hope, who are in bondage, and who have no answer to their predicament, but must stay in slavery. Of course, ours is slavery to sin. We can't master our sins. They master us. We can't find willpower sufficient. We can't find moral endeavor within our hearts to defeat it. We are helpless and undone. And somebody a slave, for instance, might come and say, I will pay whatever is needed to the owner of this slave so that they can be set free. That was the redemption price. That will redeem them. That will purchase them back from their slavery and buy for them freedom. And that's what the Lord Jesus did. That's what his blood does. Buys us freedom from the guilt of our sin. Freedom also from the power of our sin as sanctification progressively works to renew us inwardly, to give us a pure heart and to give us clean hands. And this is all in him. That effect, and therefore all of what the Holy Spirit is going to do, well, that redemption obtained that for us. We call that purchased grace. He purchased thereby his sacrifice, all that the Holy Spirit would bring into our life and into our experience. And of course, that redemption, that buying back, wasn't just a sort of casual thing. Oh, I'll pay this price here, right? He's free now. You're happy now? Good. Run on. And, and we're fine. No. It required of God that he should forgive those who are enslaved. Because they're not enslaved to some sort of arbitrary power or, or some invisible, indistinct kind of authority. They're actually in slavery to God and his law, that we are under his curse. 
that we have failed his laws and he holds us bound over for condemnation because of the offences that we have committed against him. He, as it were, has to pay to himself, pay through himself that redemption price and be willing to pay it because he's willing to forgive those people, those slaves to sin, those people who are offending him and rebelling against him and all kinds of foolish things they were saying and doing against him. And he was willing to forgive. Forgive on the basis of what his son would do, purchasing them with his blood, that he might then buy those people back. But the law, his law, it's not some abstract law out there that, oh dear, I better, I better do what the law says. I don't really want to have to do it, but I'll do it. No, it had to be done because the law is God. It's, it's his character. It's his, who he is. And so it was a price that could not be overlooked. There couldn't be some uh, deal that's done, some compromise arrangement. No, the sacrifice that was made had to be a lawful one. It had to be in a manner that brought together all of the principles of the law that dealt adequately with justice. We deserved. We should stay there in our sins, stay as slaves to sin, stay as those bound over to condemnation. No, the sacrifice was lawful, met all of the principles of the law, its demands, while at the same time, through our Lord Jesus Christ, bringing us the forgiveness that is everything to us and buys us back from our sin. No longer the guilt hanging over our heads, no longer an expectation of judgment to come in the respect of that, that we'll be cast into everlasting damnation. That's been lifted. And instead, even the power of sin is beginning to weaken because of the grace of the Holy Spirit in our lives. What we have in him, everything in him, and the giving of forgiveness and the willingness that his son should pay that price, that price to the offended law, the law of God, was not done grudgingly, was not done in a sense of deep regrets and of, oh, does it really have to be like this? Oh, these foolish people, I'd rather leave them, actually. Let them just stay there. It wasn't done like that. It was done, actually, very, very willingly. It was done with great generosity, done with great sincerity, that our well-being really, really was on God's heart, where we should be instead of where we might have been as condemned people. It was very, very near to his heart. This wasn't some kind of artificial arrangement, not something entered into like a a kind of business deal, you just sign here and there. There's no great emotion in that. This was very deep, very felt, very emotional. And in it, as we were looking this morning, that love of God. So we have a willing sacrifice, a total sacrifice, a lawful sacrifice, not one that somehow pushed the law out of the way. No, the law demands the death of the sinner and the Lord Jesus most certainly died, his blood. Oh yes, that symbol of life gone, that is there, and unmistakably so. We ourselves are free in that way, free from the sin's curse, free from the guilt of sin, free indeed in an increasing way from its power. But we may not be free from the consequences of the sins that we've committed. 
We may have to issue apologies. We may have to give some restoration to offended people. We may have to make reparations if that's appropriate there. Well, we may have to face prison or even the death penalty if we truly are sincere in our repentance. So there are consequences, but he'll give grace in those. What we have in him, second heading, well, it is the title, The Riches of His Grace. And Paul is really stretching language, isn't he? he he's trying to convey, and God is giving him the words which are going to capture it at least to some extent, to the extent that humankind can receive it and the language and communication between people, the words we have can, can sort of bear the weight of these things. But really, it, it's, it's beyond language, isn't it? The riches of his grace, which he made to abound. Just a little trickle of it. This is like a torrent of it. This is like being submerged under this, this grace. It's like us being absolutely immersed in it. It's not just little droplets of it. It's not just a little measure of it kind of just rather hesitatingly and grudgingly given out to you. It proceeds from God in a way that this is the language, the riches of his grace. So we might just stop there for a moment and do our word check, as it were, on grace. <laughs> grace. Well, it's along the lines of what we've already been saying, isn't it? That this is God's predisposition of willingness to treat people who deserve actually his wrath, but to treat them totally differently and to treat them generously and kindly, to treat them with warmth and with sympathy and to treat them in such a way that actually their position is so dramatically changed that there is no condemnation now. It's lifted and it's gone. Lord Jesus has paid that. And that, that is grace. That is that disposition, that willingness in God's character to show favor to those who deserve wrath, to show mercy to those who deserve condemnation, to be willing to act in such a way that the, yes, the demands of the law can be met, but not only the demands of the law, but the demands of love in the heart of God to do needy sinners good. And that is grace. That is grace as it is in the heart of God. And then we receive grace in our lives because God gives to us gifts and helps which we don't deserve, but which are powerful and operative to move us on in our Christian understanding and our Christian life. But it is fundamental to God's character to be willing to show mercy, to have grace towards sinners, to act in gracious ways towards them. And so Paul, in describing how much grace comes and what's tied up with that grace, how God's predisposition works out in practice, well, the word riches comes into view. That's the inspired word that gets us near to what this is all about, and the fullness of it. And then the word abound, that it kind of comes, there's so much of it, that it abounds into us. We don't just receive a, a little kind of credit into our, our bank account, but we see, we see billions, we receive an infinite amount, comes into our account. It's not a small kind of 
pay that debt off there and the last penny or the last whatever there, but the whole thing and more than that and credited with the righteousness of God's own son. So that is how God will treat us. And he wants us to know it. And that's why he gave Paul to write this for the people then and for the people like us now, because we are often not feeling forgiven at all, not believing that God really can be caring of us or find anything that he wants to forgive in us or be gracious to us. We feel such low and worthless and mean-spirited creatures. We feel that uh, we have nothing there. Still feel very guilty for the people that we are still as Christians. We're wretched about our ongoing besetting sins or whatever else. But that doesn't mean, as so often, people think, well, I'll, do, I'll try harder. Uh, and I'll, I'll try and please God more. I'll work harder, try harder at this. I'll try harder at that and try to work through all of this, this guilt and all, all this feeling of just not being right before God. I'll work harder, do more things and try and somehow amass a bit of, a bit of my own righteousness maybe there. God would say, don't bother. It's never, it's never going to satisfy me. Whatever you do, maybe your best works are still pretty dire when you really look at them. Because says, that's not how I want you to think of me. I want you to think of me as actually very gracious, very generous, very sympathetic. Look at my son. We looked at him this morning, didn't we? There, that's it. Sending his only begotten son into the world. We love God, but the, he loved us. I made his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And he wants us to know that. And he wants us to be very sure of that. Very, very sure of that. In fact, not to think that is to insult him. It is to take away from the language of scripture, riches of his grace, that you mean is his, his willingness to do good to people who deserve the opposite is, is, is vast and, and there's plenteousness in it. Yes. Uh, that's what the word abound also means. There's a lot of it. And, and, and if you think you've, begun to understand it, well, that you haven't. There's more to it. There's a lot here. There's so much here. You'll never exhaust it. Not in this life. Not in the next one either, actually. And that is is ours. So, yes, we read Romans chapter 5. And did you not catch there the way the, the language goes as Paul, well, he digresses here, actually. But it's a digression, inspired digression. And we're very glad of this digression and all this contrast, there's what Adam brought us, this this one man he just brought in, this offense here and transgression, what that did. But then, oh, what about the grace? And you'll see the word occur again and again and again. God's willingness to show favor. Well, that kept intervening. And that keeps stepping in here. So there's what Adam brought. Oh, what wretchedness. But then, and oh, it's so, so much more. That's what he keeps saying, it's so much more. Romans 5, verse 15, oh, it's so much more. What what comes through him? And the word abound is again there in verse 15 of Romans 5. And in Romans 5, verse 17, the word abundance, it's an abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. It's an abundant gift of righteousness. It has everything in it. And then verse 5, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 20, and there, grace abounded much more. Whatever damage sin did, whatever 
horrors it brought into our life, whatever damage that it brought to our relationship with God, more than undone. The Lord Jesus did that pure expression of God's kindness to sinful people, all undone. And it meets with, as it were, this uh, our sin, which seems so obdurate and hard. And how can this be moved? Well, it's it's just swept away with a tidal wave of God's love, God's grace, God's mercy. So riches of his grace. And it comes to us in wisdom and prudence. It generates in us, actually, a capacity to reflect upon this. It is measured out in such a way that we have a capacity to reflect upon it, to evaluate it wisely, prudently, to cherish it, to see what this actually means. And so much of what Paul's going to pray in verse 15 is is correlated with this wisdom and prudence, that your eyes of your understanding are going to be enlightened, that you're going to know what is the hope of his calling and the riches of his glory, as we sing it there in verse 18 of chapter 1 in Ephesians. This wisdom and prudence that we're going to see, but this is so, so carefully done, that this is so beautifully accomplished, that how could ever this have been fathomed? That yes, in the Son being both God and man, living among us, that he should obtain a salvation that does everything for us. Oh, and that he lived all that life beforehand. There his merits of his righteous living that are credited to us. And so our position, this is the riches, here's the abounding, that we receive his gift of righteousness, guarded like the sun, as though you and I have done the works of the sun, as though our works were pure and perfect and harmonious, and that God, as it were, rushes to meet with such a one and, and, and shower them with his love and assure them of their, their place with him, declaring them to be holy. Well, that is precisely what he does. And we're meant to be overwhelmed by that, actually. And we're meant to be amazed by it. And I can tell you this, because we wouldn't hear in Scripture if it was not good for our souls to know this. But that is the nature, that is the character of God. And though Paul has to remonstrate with those who say, oh, that's it, you'll cause them all now to be careless about their sins, or they'll now abandon the law, this is too good for them. Paul will have none of that, will he? On the contrary, we uphold the law, he says, but you'll uphold it a lot better if you're convinced of this God of love, the riches of this grace. If you're praying according to that, if you're expecting to receive according to that, if your faith has kind of reached to that and laid hold of that promise and really begun to live in the good of it, oh, you'll, you'll want to be holy. You'll find that this God of love is so worthy of respect and love in return. You'll want to be holy and you'll want to do his commandments and you'll love to do them rather than feel, oh, do we have to not lie or do we have to not steal? It seems much easier to do it. You won't feel like that at all if you want to do it. And so we have then, best we can describe in the time, the riches of his grace. Paul is going to carry on. There's more he's got to say about our Lord Jesus and Make sure that we're getting the message that he is immense, really, really immense. And everything, everything in the the purposes of God, they center upon his son. And he has a great future in view for his son. And we'll think a little bit more about that, God willing, 
in a week's time.